the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This program is sponsored by Amplified Peace. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Amplify Peace. We are all about exploring how we can listen, learn, and live differently in this crazy world. Together, we want to discover the impact of empathy, the strength of unity, the power of love, and the beauty of humanity. I'm your host, Lisa Jernigan, and I am been so looking forward to this um let's say interview, but this conversation with somebody who is becoming a good friend um, and in in purpose and in uh, spirit and in the work. And so joining me today, and I'm going to, I might blow your name, but how I say it, but, and I want to say it with this accent, but it's Sammy De Pasquale uh, from Abara Ministries. And you can correct me because I, I'm terrible with, with accents, but um, Sammy is the founder and director of Abara Ministries which operates out of El Paso, Texas, does a lot of work there in Juarez and in El Paso. And I am not going to say a lot about you besides I, we met recently at a, at a shared uh, event in Ohio connected and it's like, okay, we need to know each other. I need to learn from you. And that's how I'm like, okay, I need to know more about what you do and learn from you. So I'm going to let you share your story. And so welcome to Amplify Peace. And Tell us a little bit about, because you have a fascinating background, who you are, who you've been, and uh, why you do what you do. So welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Um, yeah, big questions. Uh, so we're, yeah, Abara is a nonprofit located in El Paso, Texas. And as you mentioned, we we work in this space in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and El Paso, Texas, Um and maybe we'll get into this more today, but really El Paso and Juarez, in my opinion, are one community with a dividing line down the middle and end up in two countries. So it's a it's a fascinating and complex and sometimes heartbreaking and often beautiful location here, um, trying to grapple through what that means to be one community in two countries, um, of course. So then we're not only impacted by what's happening in our immediate community, but by these broader policies and narratives that are um uh that that are framed far outside of the border right or our loc- our direct location um and but i've i've been in in our area for 20 years my wife is from el paso and we moved here soon after getting married um but i was i grew up in the middle east my parents are from the us and um we're from upstate new york my dad's from buffalo my mom near there and uh, had moved to the country of Jordan before I was born and have spent, you know, the better part of the last five decades in the Middle East, just recently coming back to the U.S. But um, they've lived in many, in quite a few countries, Jordan and Cyprus and Egypt and Sudan and Iraq and Sudan again, and then back to Jordan. So 20 years in Jordan and then a number of other countries in between, um, working in a lot of different areas, mostly related to the, the church in the Middle East and trying to walk alongside and, and help the work of the, the, the church in the Middle East. Sometimes, uh, most recently, that's looked like 
uh, more humanitarian work in education and and uh, healthcare and access to water. And they were working at a hospital in Jordan for the last eight years or so up on the border with Syria. But so growing up, my reality was, uh, was, was mostly a Jordanian reality. And I went to school, my schooling was all in Arabic in Jordan. And, and the context that I lived in was, was pretty much all in Arabic. My church was all in Arabic. Schooling was in Arabic, playing out in the streets and in my neighborhood. Um, pretty much just functioning in Arabic. So at home, we'd speak English, but everywhere else, um, that was uh, a different reality. Or I just had these sort of, you know, various parts of my formation from different communities. And, uh, you know, there was, I think, a stream throughout my life when I look back, you know, just of being uh, and interacting with and deeply loving and being closely connected to those who had been displaced. So in Jordan, um Many of my best friends were Palestinians who had been displaced or their families had when, when, the, when the country of Israel was formed after World War II, and they had found themselves pushed out and had settled in Jordan. And some, you know, still two or three decades later, didn't have a normalized status in Jordan and so had a lot of uncertainty. So I grew up with those stories of pain and displacement. Later on in high school, we lived in Cyprus, um, a little island in the eastern Mediterranean that's also divided um, and the city that I lived in, Nicosia, the capital, they called that the last divided capital in the world, I believe. And so, again, like one, the northern part is is under Turkish occupation and part of the country of Turkey. And the southern part of the city is is in its own sovereign country and in the nation of Cyprus and is Greek and Orthodox. And the north is Turkish and, and Muslim predominantly. Um, and so... Similar to the context here in El Paso, you know, probably about a mile from my from the apartment that we lived in in Cyprus, we could, the, the roads would dead end in barbed wire and armed troops. Um, and I couldn't go to the other side of town. And I never did the whole time that I lived there in high school. Um, but here in El Paso, um, as a U.S. citizen, I can cross back and forth freely. Um, and many, many Mexican nationals can as well if they have the visas to but then others are prevented from doing so just because of their status and they sort of have to just be in one side of town. So I uh, ended up going to uh, college in the U.S., sort of thought I would come here for college and head back out of the country. I studied international development with a focus on economic development and uh, environmental sustainability. I only I, I did about two years and then uh, I ended up leaving and going to Egypt for a Middle East studies program and was there ended up leaving school after that semester and staying in Egypt and volunteering in various capacities, then went to India for a year, then came back and finished, worked for a few years in refugee resettlement with World Relief in the Chicago area, got married during that time period and moved to El Paso. So from, I guess, from Jordan to Cyprus to uh, some of the volunteer work in Egypt to working uh, with World Relief with refugee resettlement and now being on the border I think my life is sort of intersected with a lot of people on the move and many who have experienced forced displacement or have had to leave where they, the place that they lived, they lived in and loved um, for reasons outside of their own choice. And so, yeah, the last 20 years been, been here in El Paso. And I think that's led into what I do. Um, maybe I'll say one more thing, just, you were saying, you know, asking why uh, I think you did. Did you ask why I, I did. <laughs> Why well, I, I worked it? Yeah. So I mean, you know, maybe it's self-evident, but like a couple things come to mind. One, I think uh, 
I think of a time in Egypt when I was about 20 and um, I found myself volunteering with, with an, with an older lady um, who was visiting a little, a little jail in, in a, off of a back alley in Cairo. And uh, she wasn't from Egypt and didn't speak Arabic. And I was helping, helping, helping her and interpreting for her. And uh, what we found in that jail, I just sort of blew my mind because essentially there was over a hundred young men stuffed into a little cell so tightly that they, uh, they couldn't even all lay down at the same time because there wasn't enough space. And some had been in there for over a year and they were all from sub-Saharan Africa. And most of them, although <clears throat> the stories varied, but in general, most were trying to find their way to Europe in order to find some work to be able to support their families and community that, that, that were in desperate circumstances in various countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Their dreams had sort of come to an end in, in Egypt where they, they hadn't been able to find a way forward and had gotten sort of stuck there and um, essentially were undocumented in Egypt and had gotten rounded up in raids and were put in these cells and were sort of just invisible with no one even knowing they were there. So there was a couple things from, I think, that that really that have stuck out to me, when I, especially when I look back. One was just what is happening sort of in these contexts that, that I don't even know about, that we don't know about, that we don't see especially in relation to to um, immigrants and refugees. And then two, sort of like, what can we do about it? Um, and of course, just becoming proximate and seeing it usually instigates some sort of movement, hopefully, I mean, not always, but it, it certainly seems like a, a first step. And then being willing to sort of step into that space, even not knowing what to do, but trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? Like this older lady who I was with, she had no background in this whatsoever, but she put herself in that space and kept visiting and then sort of some ideas would emerge. And uh, and in the end, over a couple year period, she pretty much helped maybe maybe a hundred, but certainly dozens from ver- of various nationalities get out of, of that jail cell um, and be able to move towards safety somewhere else. Um, and so I think... Um, that idea of like this uh, personal encounter leading to meaningful action has definitely inspired uh, me and the work that we do here in El Paso and Juarez. Okay, there's so much I could say about what you just said. Um, first of all, your journey is amazing. Um, just for all the places God has taken you. And you literally have seen the results of division and lines whether it's through land divides, people divides, cultural divides, and the ramifications of that, which has really informed the work you're doing today, which is a beautiful place. And as you you talk about some of your stories, it's I've been to quite a few of those countries in the Middle East, and I've seen what you've seen. And you know, once you've seen, you can't unsee, right? You talk about proximity and being there, and listening to the stories and seeing there. And I remember. In the early days when uh, the, with the Syrian crisis and Syrians were going into Jordan um, and a couple of us women went over there, we're like, we got to see for ourselves what's going on, like really what's happening. And we worked with a couple of organizations and they got us into Zadari refugee camp. And I remember sitting there just it was like a year or so after. Um, and so the camp was just forming and just listening to the stories. And I remember one young man sharing how how they had to flee 
so quickly. And he was in college and he was in his senior year and he left and he didn't have any identification on him. He had no, you know, nothing with him. And his parents fled and they, they're in a different country. And he, the reality that he'll probably never see his parents because he can never leave Jordan because he has no documentation, no identity, so to speak, and they can't see. And so just the realities of when you have to flee so quickly and being displaced and we we don't really realize all the ripple effects, how that really impacts an individual and their family and their future. And so the work you're doing, what you're saying um, is really important for us to realize. We don't realize the many times our story is incomplete of what we see, what we know, because we're, we're getting our information from news media um, or people's opinions that have an opinion that are just sharing it instead of actually being like you talked about proximity being in same place with people, hearing from them, letting them tell their stories, which is so powerful. Um, I want to shift back to your work in El Paso and talking about the sense of place and with people, the area, just briefly, where your office is, because you have shared with me, and it just, it kind of blew my mind. Again, you know, in our work of peacemaking, when we when we look at history, so much of history has been written from the victor's point of view, and it's uh, it's negated a lot of different people groups and people from the story that were really instrumental in the story. But because it's written from a particular side with maybe a particular agenda, right? But your area where you sit is really has historical just value and richness that goes back. 500 years. Can you just give us a quick overview of the sense of place of where you're, you literally, your office is located and the significance of that to your work and to the story and to peacemaking? Yes, I'd love to. Um, so first of all, sort of going back to where I ended um, in the last response about sort of this intersection of personal encounter and meaningful action, a lot of our work here on the border is related to those two areas. We have what we call border encounters or opportunities for people from around the U.S. to come to the border to listen and learn and reflect and try to discern for themselves how to what sort of meaningful action they can pursue. And then for us, in terms of uh, meaningful action, we we sort of try to support uh, the work on the ground of about thirty migrant shelters on both sides of the border. And so, in that sense. Um, sort of having a direct humanitarian response on the ground, as well as this education piece. But through the education piece, I think over the years, um, it's led us back farther and farther, just thinking about root causes, root causes, root causes, from what's happening in, you know, it could be Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, or Venezuela, or Syria, or Myanmar, or to like our U.S. policies and and policies of other countries and, or then just to narratives and the narratives that form us um, and our beliefs of what, you know, what we're pursuing or what's actually happening. Um, so in the context of all of that, we would, we would, we'd of course visit all sorts of places, including visit this one spot on the U S Mexico border fence where you can walk right up to the fence. Now it was unique because in El Paso, there's only a few places you can do that in the city of El Paso. There's hardly any, because a big highway system runs right along the border. But there's one little pocket where there's about 10 buildings that are squeezed in because of a little bend in the river. They're squeezed in between the highway and this border fence. So there's this spot that you can go. 
And um, there's like a few broken down old buildings. One of them looked fascinating. There's a little park and there's a couple businesses. And then over time, start looking over and seeing these monuments that were just um, on this vacant patch of dirt. Um, and and was we were just drawn into this incredible history over time. Again, not all of this was framed in one place to read or to look at or to see on a website. But there's these three monuments there that talk a little bit about this history. Um, now, just because you, you mentioned it already, if I fast forward, a number of years later, we were able to acquire this property, which has been incredible. And over the last couple of years, we've been figuring out how, you know, how do we steward this property well? Um, and we can talk more about that vision. But when I think about the history in that place, it's incredible because it it pulls us back into history, not just today. You know, most people will come and visit the border or even people that are in on the border are thinking about what happened last week, last year or even the last decade. Um, but you get drawn into, like you said, 500 years of history. So one of the monuments says that this is the spot that Juan de Oñate crossed the river in 1598 essentially to claim the lands of the southwestern U.S. for Spain. So he was called the last conquistador um, as Spain was expanding um, within their their empire and and within colonization. He came up from Mexico City, 1,100-mile trek with a caravan. This was the first one to settle. There had been exploratory trips, and there were some military outposts like in um, in St. Augustine, Florida. But this, as far as we know, may have been the first European efforts to settle permanently with families and farms and animals in what's now the U.S. And so this happened 15, 20 years before England was, or English settlers were arriving on the East Coast. So Juan de Oñate arrives in 1598, solidifies what becomes known as the Camino Real, or Camino Real de Tierra Adentro, sort of the Royal Road of the Interior, they had multiple royal roads. Spain did in their colonies. And in our, it, what ended up in the U.S., there's three of them. One ends up in San Antonio. One crosses through El Paso and goes up to Santa Fe. The other one goes along the West Coast in California. But this was the, uh, the first one. But, of course, the Spanish are being led by indigenous guides. And so they're la- the, this Camino Real is layered on top of older Native American routes of trade and transport and connection. Um, so you have Native American stories and you have Spanish colonization. Then there's another monument off to the side that basically said, this is the most feasible snow-free route from the Atlantic to the Pacific year round through the Rocky Mountains. So the U.S. is forming a couple hundred years later, right? Um, on, the, on the East Coast, states are coming together. The U.S. has formed, it's gained independence. And then we have this deep-seated belief that has sort of taken root called manifest destiny right seed a shining sea god has ordained that this land is for the european settlers english-speaking european settlers on the east coast so of course if god has ordained this then you're going to get from the atlantic to the pacific so that's sort of the backdrop to the u.s mexico war because all of the southwest here was part of mexico mexico by that point had gained independence from spain so we go to war with mexico in the end mexico cedes half of their country we gain a third of the continental U.S. We've gained the lo- we've gained the actual physical spot to get us from sea to shining sea. Then the question is, how do we get there? Right, the Rocky Mountain range from Canada down to Mexico is pretty is pretty significant. And so this 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 monument, as I read it in that context, is basically saying, okay, this is the spot. It's snow free year round. 
um, between the Atlantic to the Pacific, this is where we come through. So a lot of what frames El Paso and Juarez together, they were, had been called El Paso del Rio del Norte, the Pass of the River of the North. And it's been called that since 1598 as a region. And of course, because it is this pass through the mountains is where the Rio Grande cuts through the mountains and you can go then connect south, north and east, west. So it's right at those crossroads. Then another, uh, after in the U.S.-Mexico War, there was a man named Simeon Hart. He fought in the war. After the war was done, he he sort of settled right on that property, built a mill, and built a house. And that house is still around, and later became a restaurant. But when he built the mill, this is before the Civil War, and he brought African American slaves with him. So there was a history of slavery on the property. Um, after the Civil War, um, the U.S. begins our or, or ends uh, completes our like effort to lay train tracks in the west to connect everything and the train tracks run through the same spot on the edge of the property those train tracks are built with chinese laborers um around the west sometimes it was irish crews or sometimes it was chinese crews mostly chinese and in our context it was chinese in 1881 the tracks were finished in 1882 the u.s enacted its first major immigration act that was called the chinese exclusion act and I don't think it's, you know, that it's 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 a um, a coincidence that that happens right after the labor is done, right? So the labor is finished, and then it's sort of like, okay, you're no longer welcome here, and it's for a certain community, right? Certain um, community, and then later on, like when we talk to our friends in Border Patrol who talk about Border Patrol history, when Border Patrol really was starting to formalize in in what predated what was called Border Patrol, um, they were about a hundred years ago. They were still, what they were patrolling for were for Chinese who were coming to Mexico and trying to sneak into the U.S. So even our modern day, like what our border patrol is formed on something that maybe we didn't really think about. So what's crazy is that on this physical location, you have pieces of almost like these threads and stories of the Americas, not just the U.S., but Native American presence, Spanish colonization, Mexican independence, U.S. westward expansion and and settlement and sort of almost like a second wave of colonization going west, African-American slavery, which, by the way, we don't necessarily think of it, but that's forced migration and labor, right? Um, and then Chinese laborers on the train tracks. That's only through 1881, where we haven't even hit the last 140-some years. So we can already talk, like, your mind is taken to a different place because you're thinking, well, this isn't a story from the last 10 years or five years. This has been the story in this one location. And it's always, and it's also bringing together um, a lot of questions about who belongs, who doesn't, um, who is wanted, who isn't, whose labor is desired, and whose isn't. And then, and, and sort of like those deep rooted questions that I think really are at the, at the core of even what, what the U S and the world is trying to figure out today. As we see in our mission statement, we say, you know, we recognize the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And in response to global migration in a polarizing world, Abara uh, inspires connections beyond borders. And, and we do that through mutual understanding, education and meaningful action. And our pursuit is that of narrative systems and personal change. So we're, we're recognizing that, you know, there's, we're in a world today where we have more global migration and forced migration than in any known time in history. 
and we're also in this polarizing environment. So what happens in that context? There's a whole lot of suffering if you've got people on the move and then others who are really trying to define and say, no, you can't come in here. So that's sort of a little bit of that history of the property. Now, we, we acquired that property and we were trying to use all of this history to think through how do we approach this today? Um, looking through history, what's happening today? You can be standing on the property and you're looking over at right now, Texas National Guards, Border Patrol. Um, there's a big fence, border fence. You might see someone walk up and try to turn themselves in for asylum. There's layer of, layers of concertina wire now. Um, and, and you're trying to process history today. And then our hope is how, what do we, how do we look with prophetic imagination in this context of what could be and who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus? Or, or for anybody, really, we like we, 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 the majority of the groups who come visit with us are church groups, but we are open to anybody who, who's sort of people of peace wanting to explore this issue. You know, you talk about the significance of history, and that's one of the things I've really realized in my peacemaking journey is we tend to look at the problems of now and today without realizing we got to where we are because of history and because of other, like you said, root issues that we're, we're not, we're oblivious to so many times. Like, why is this happening to us right now? And so I think it's so important to understand a historical narrative to the sense of place, to a people group, to um, the modern realities and the issues that we're facing today. I love how you go into that. I want to continue this conversation. I want to do a part two here because there's more to talk about. But for right now, um, I'm going to pause it right here. And we want to we want to learn more from you and hear more of the work you're doing now because of the historical narrative and the future where you see. So we're going to do part two, but I just want to wrap this up. And I want to say thank you uh, for the work you're, you're doing that you're continuing to do and your heart for it and that your soul is so invested. And that's, we need more people like that, that go, I have to do this work and I have to see people differently and respond differently. So as always, thank you for being a part of this podcast and the Amplify Peace community. For more information on living as a peacemaker in today's world, connect with us at AmplifyPeace.com and you can follow us on all social media. Shalom. This program was sponsored by Amplified Peace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.